Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Compete Waffle. My name's Alicia. I'm an advanced sports dietitian and co-founder of Compete Nutrition. Now, the guest for this podcast is the incredible Jessica Smith. Now, if you haven't come across Jess in your journeys, you are about to be wowed with her story. Uh, her ability to tell her story with so much raw authenticity is just breathtaking. And we are so proud to have her on the waffle um, to share her story with so many of you. Um, so if you have been through eating disorder or disordered eating, this I would like to put out as just a trigger warning. We are talking a lot about this in our waffle today. Um, we are talking a lot about her journey uh, as an athlete, growing up with an eating disorder from a very young age, what that meant to her, but also what impacts it had, what it felt like, and really what we can do better around the athlete, but also the overall population when we're talking about disordered eating and eating disorder. So, you know, we talk about uh, the build-up to changing her behavior around food and um, her strategies, uh, the real call out for help, what we could have done better in the systems and um, what recovery really does look like and how long it really can take to get to the point of food freedom. But the hope that exists and where, you know, the possible empathy that can be brought out of sharing stories, hearing stories, we don't need to live an experience to be able to empathize with an experience. And this is what our real hope is today by sharing Jess's story. So many of you will either hear a story that resonates with themselves and really reaches out for help and sees hope for recovery. Or you may hear a story that allows you to pinpoint, you know, behaviors or symptoms in someone you love and you know exactly what to do next to hopefully support that person to recovery. There's no doubt that eating disorders is a relentless condition. It's a confusing one, it's a muddle, uh, and it's really hard to understand when you're not in that space and when you're not experiencing that. So how do we approach this so that we're not fearful of making it worse? How do we approach this in a way that we're not fearful of, you know, that, that response that may shut us down or deny a problem? You know, these are all the things that we talk about in the podcast, so I won't go into depth. We do talk a lot about terms that you may not have come across, so I'll run through them now, just so you're listening to the podcast um, in a way that just flows freely. So um, purging is one term that you will hear. Purging is the um, vomiting after eating. Um, it can come after a binge or it can come after just eating. Uh, it's um, a, a, one of the behaviors around eating disorder. You'll also hear the word binging. Binging is different to overeating. Overeating is a very normal physiological process that happens when we enjoy a food or are out socially or we're just feeling a bit emotional. Binging comes with a different terminology. It is feeling completely out of control when we eat and it's generally associated with feelings of guilt, anxiety, um, and really leads us to then trying to eliminate um, that behavior or a vicious cycle to do it all again. Uh, we'll also hear terms like over-exercising or exercise um, addiction where you will compulsively have to exercise. Um, so hopefully that eliminates some of the confusion around the terms used, but if we have covered anything that you feel you have questions about or you'd like to explore more, I have linked um, Jess's website into the show notes alongside um, some support material who will help you if you would like to reach out or talk to someone. 
Um, this is a really big topic. There's no easy way to get around that. But I think the biggest piece I want to really hammer home is that it is so much easier to treat disordered eating and that start of the change in behavior around food and relationship with food than it is an eating disorder. So it's never too early to speak up. It's never too early to reach out. And please don't let the cliche of what an eating disorder looks like, you know, that teenage young female who is skeletal, that is just one image of eating disorder. Eating disorder doesn't have an image. It doesn't have this one definition. And so please don't believe, you know, I don't look sick enough or I am too old to have an eating disorder. It's too late to make changes stop you from reaching out and gaining support. This is not a gender specific condition. This is something that impacts both females and males. And we need to create a safe space that encourages conversation and encourages um, the ability to reach out safely. So I think I've spoken enough. I'm so excited to share this podcast with you. Jess is just an absolute powerhouse and I feel so grateful to have known her for so many years now and watched her story and seen her grow and develop into this incredible person who now holds an order, of, uh, a medal of the Order of Australia for you know, being absolutely amazing alongside being Cosmo Women of the Year in 2017 uh, and a finalist for Young Australian of the Year in 2015. She did... Um, represent Australia at the Paralympics in swimming and you'll hear all about that as well um, but yeah without further ado here is Jess cheers thank you so much for joining us on the Compete Waffle Jess thank you so much for having me I'm so excited to talk about these really important issues with you and share a bit of my story yeah, I, um, I, I, of course, have um, kept in touch with you for a long time, but also we, we synced our kids at very close age gaps. So it's kind of been nice to see your kids grow and always kind of share in that uh, sleep deprivation together. Yes, different yes absolutely. Life. Yeah, so many commonalities. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so, it's just ridiculous. Now, when we're um, kind of, I guess, introing this podcast, I think it's really important to give a little bit of background about you. So Obviously, this is um, a really big piece that we're going to be covering today with a lot of history and a lot of emotion. And um, can you just tell me a little bit about your story? Um, you know, from the time you were born, you were born looking different. And I think that really just placed you in this, um, you know, a really big um, opportunity to make change, but also how you see that change has been really incredible. And I'd just like you to share that story, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. And that's such a nice way to put it because a lot of people start that first conversation or that intro in a negative way. Like, um, so I'm grateful for you saying the, the opportunity for change because, yeah, I was born missing my left arm and there's been no explanation as to why that happened. And so I grew up in a world where I was constantly told I couldn't do things or I wouldn't be able to do things professionals like doctors and psychologists using labels, you know, disabled, deformed, um, negative body image. They were, these were all terms and phrases that either my parents heard or I heard. And so, you know, when you're trying to find your identity and figure out who you are based on the fact that I, I knew I looked different, mm. um, it was really, really challenging for me to try and figure out what my identity was, knowing that the labels that I was being, you know, or were being placed upon me didn't sit right with me. I didn't feel that that was who I was. It wasn't a representation of how I was feeling. And so trying to push against those barriers and push against society uh, was very, very difficult. And I remember 
wanting to do that from such a young age, but feeling um, so complexed in how I could do that just as this young girl, you know, with so many challenges already placed in front of me. But thankfully, from a very young age, I found sport. So I come from a very sporting family, three younger brothers. We were always very active and physical. And I saw, as you mentioned, the opportunity for me to use my body and to prove to the world and everybody around me, myself included, that I could use my body in ways that people thought that I couldn't. And by doing that, it would give me the opportunity to prove that I didn't have to be limited by the words and the terminology and the language that society was using to describe me. And so um, it, it was this, um, I suppose, innate ability and motivation for me to say, you know what, um, I'm not going to be belittled and I'm not going to feel as though everyone around me is, is treating me in a way where they feel that they have to be sympathetic. And so I'm very grateful for the sport in my life and the fact that my mum and dad, they never pushed me, but they also never allowed me to feel sorry for myself. And so that enabled me to, to take that plunge into all different sports. You know, I remember, um, during my school days, playing hockey, you know, not, not the greatest hockey player at all. And I'm pretty sure everyone put me in goals for quite a lot of that. Um, <laughs> I was t and I would just stand there because I was like, oh, this is terrifying. That is but the, the point terrifying position, 110%. It is. nothing natural about that position. Yes. So much respect for, for the hockey goalies. Um, anyone playing hockey, it's dangerous. Um, but, but it just, I... I don't want to say that cliche thing of, you know, um, just trying and never giving up, but, but there is a basis of that. And, and I guess that I had the support from my family in the sense that anything I wanted to try, they, they supported me to do so. And so I never felt that there was a barrier there. And by doing that, I hope, and I do believe that I have opened the eyes of a lot of people in society for them to change their own thinking um, in that di disability and physical appearance doesn't define what we're able to achieve in life. Now, having said that, I was still, you know, I'm a, I'm a woman living in this world, uh, facing all the, the challenges when it comes to body image and wanting to be accepted and wanting to feel as though, even though I don't look like, you know, the 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 beauty mold that society has you know put out into the world i don't look like the actresses and the models and i don't look like a typical athlete or at least i didn't think that i kept wondering how could i what could i change about myself i, I couldn't control the fact that i had one arm and that i had you know i have scars on my body from a burns accident as a child so there's a lot of things that i felt completely um, out of control when it came to who I was and the way that I looked. So I focused on what I could control. And for me, and for a lot of people, that was, you know, my food intake and my weight. If I could just lose a little bit of weight, maybe then I would look like the perfect athlete. Maybe then it would compensate for the fact that I have these other differences that are so profound and they seem to be what people are focusing on. If I could have that perfect body, maybe then I'd be happy. And of course, anyone who has lived in that hellish nightmare of eating disorders, which is what I, um, you know, eventually found myself living in from the age of 14, it's horrendous. It's a nightmare and you think you're in control, but in actual fact, it's controlling you in so many different ways. Yeah, you mentioned that word control a few times. And I think that's a really nice place to start this conversation because 
so much of eating disorder is around finding control and seeking control when everything else feels out of control. And um, food is one of those things that we can find ourselves editing and changing and adapting. 14 sounds so young, and I'm sure to our listeners, 14 sounds really young. Um, can you remember as that young teenager, the first kind of period of time you started playing with your food and finding yourself changing how you saw food and how you felt when you were eating? Yeah, it's a really good question, actually, because I didn't see food as anything other than food up until the age of 14. You know, it was just, it wasn't even a source of fuel. It just was what it was. It was breakfast, lunch and dinner and snacks, whatever. It was just, there was no um, real emotion evolved, uh, sorry, involved with, with what I was eating. Um, but I think at that age, um, there were other girls at school who were, editing what the, I like that word, editing um, what they were eating. And I actually do have a family history. I have a, um, aunties um, who have struggled with eating disorders. So it was in the back of my mind, but not, not enough for me to be conscious of what it all actually meant. Um, and so the, the initial idea of wanting to change what I was eating or manipulate the food intake came from me wanting to fit in with the, you know, the popular girls at school. But then there was a fine line between me being able to mask that behaviour as being a good athlete because isn't that what athletes would do? They would really monitor their food intake. And, and I felt as a young person, um, that was a message I was receiving loud and clear that in order to be an elite athlete, in order to be the best of the best, then everything is, is you know, um, calculated and everything's metac um like what's the word i'm trying to say like it, it just yeah it, it kind of proved or it symbolized to me that that was being a good athlete and so i was able to you know i suppose convince myself that whatever i was doing around food you know trying to limit my intake or to um you know to to restrict certain certain food groups altogether, that was all part of being a good athlete. So I was able to then go down that path of convincing everybody that it was nothing to worry about. It was just what I needed to do in order to get to the next step of my swimming career. And I, I remember having those thoughts at that young age of, of 14. So it was obviously a pressure that was there, but I mean, I don't know if there was one little thing that, that tweaked it for me to go, actually, you know what, I need to really focus on this. I think it was a compounding um, experience of so many things that I'd gone through in my life. Um, I also grew up in a small country town, so I don't know if the, the pressures of being, you know, potentially the only person with a disability and a young female at that, I think it was a combination of all those things, but unfortunately or fortunately sport was another pathway for me to continue in these behaviors so I don't know if that answered your question entirely but it, it's because it can be quite confusing to pinpoint what it was and and how I understood it at that time because also what then came after that was a decade-long battle so it it's quite confusing and it's quite blurred for me a lot of that time in in my life unfortunately yeah, that completely makes sense. And I think it's really important there that, yeah, there is no one definition of what an eating disorder looks like. And it's really tricky. And I think it's that 
change and that time period that it all equates to and that there is no set you know one trigger that is the trigger for everyone which makes this so difficult and i think it's part of this that hearing stories are powerful because it does allow people to be seen and just like you are you know where you were that individual who allowed you know people just like you who looked like you to see themselves achieving so much it's now doing the same in that eating disorder space which is not you know it's not pleasant but i think it's the only way that we can break through these barriers of making people feel more comfortable in having these conversations that are vulnerable and they are uncomfortable um, but it does allow um, others to kind of hear themselves and go oh wow this is what i'm going through or this is what i need to look out for um, because yeah the sport has a really long way to go here yes i agree and i hope so and i guess that when i was starting my recovery journey i was desperate to talk to people who had been on that journey before me and i just felt that there wasn't anybody and obviously that's to do with you know the stigma that still exists um and the the guilt and the shame that accompany any mental health struggle but particularly an eating disorder and so um through sharing my story it's obviously helped me uh, but i really genuinely hope that it gives other people the space to identify where they are in their own journey as well and gives them the empowerment to use their own voice should they need to mm, absolutely and you mentioned at that age you know, 13 14 as these behaviors were changing around food were there some things that i guess you know you were doing that you wanted people to pick up on as a problem like were you kind of doing these things and hoping someone would ask you if you're okay or was it really around that protection yeah i think that part came a little bit later um probably a few years two or three years later i remember initially i was proud of the fact that i had this secret i suppose i was predominantly battling with bulimia and so I, there was a lot of secrecy involved, but I had gotten myself to a point in my life where I felt quite isolated when it came to my swimming career, because when I was competing, a lot of the athletes were living in completely different other parts of Australia or around the world, especially when you're talking about Paralympic and, you know, athletes with a disability, you know, growing up in a town where I was the only swim up with a disability so that connection i didn't really have with athletes in my hometown and so in some bizarre way my um, eating disorder and the relationship that i was creating with food was something positive for me to focus on or what i thought was positive at the time and so i was happy to have this this secret i felt in a few ways empowered i felt um um I'm trying to find the, the, the right word to articulate, you know, the idea of having a secret like this, but feeling that it was something to be proud of, even though I knew it wasn't. It's very, very hard to, to put into words. So I would keep this secret for those first couple of years, but thinking that I was doing a good thing. Um, then probably two or three years later, when I realised that actually it was getting a little bit out of hand you know i wasn't able to stop i kept telling myself you know i'll get to this particular competition or i'll get to a certain weight and then that's it i won't need to do it anymore but obviously that doesn't happen it just gets worse and worse and i i could see myself in that space of being really lost and needing help but i had no idea how to say that and so yes i would 
make things a little bit more obvious. I would make trips to the bathroom after meals a little bit more obvious, hoping that somebody would say something. Um, I would deliberately restrict food in front of certain people like coaches or, you know, um, sporting staff, um, parents, things like that. But it, when they did catch on, I would become so defensive as well. I was like, don't question what I'm doing. You know, this is, this is me trying to be that good athlete that I'm supposed to be. And so it's, it's just so complex and so hard to, to define, um, you know, what that looked like and so it sounds so messy when i say it but it's just you know you know recounting these times in my mind about where i i was mentally and emotionally and what i was thinking about having you know an eating disorder and restricting and binging and purging yeah it was very very weird and i a lot of people who have had this experience you know they talk about denial and denial was definitely a state that i was living in for a long time but i think it was so confused by the fact that I was an athlete, if that makes sense. I feel that that was um, an excuse or that was what I could turn to when people did question me, even though I was wanting people to question me because I could see that it was, it was getting to a point where, you know, if I don't get help soon, this could become a real issue, even and it was an issue already at that time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I can you know, talking to you now, it's like it all sounds so jumbled. And that's because it, it was and it is when you're living with an eating disorder. There's so much of it that doesn't make sense. Even in my own mind, I wish I would be able to to explain it in a way that um, other people who don't have never had that experience can go, okay, I get it. But I think that's the issue. Until you have had that lived experience, you, you, there's so many aspects of it that people will never be able to understand. Yeah, I, I told, it was actually going to be one of my next questions to you because one of the comments I get as a dietitian working with disordered eating and eating disorder is I don't know how you do it like how do you have the patience how do you deal with this because in their minds it's so hard to empathize with something that we can't imagine uh, and we can't really picture on um, what that must look like because if you're losing weight and you're having trouble with food just eat more like it yeah it, that logical part of eating doesn't exist and um yeah I, I just find that really intriguing and you reflected that so beautifully yeah and and I think you know a lot of people understand the term you know tip of the iceberg and because so many people would say that to me just eat just eat it or just eat this and don't eat that and I'm like it's not it's not about the food once you get to that point initially yes perhaps it is but when you know one two three a decade into an eating disorder the food is merely just the symptom yeah the the vice it's just that part that you feel you can control when everything else is is you know um falling apart or that's how i felt anyway and so yeah to to articulate it, it is very very difficult um but again through talking more and through more people sharing their stories you definitely see the connections and the similarities that people have in their experience even though no two journeys are exactly the same and i think that's what makes it so much harder for professionals and people who are really trying to help and trying to understand this is such a an insidious and complex disease that it is very very difficult to be able to to help people but you know, I've been fortunate that there have been a lot of, you know, people along the way who do want to help. Um, but like, you know, you've, 
said and then people have said to you how how do you do that if you don't understand it and it is very difficult but talking and communicating is certainly um, the first step to helping people in their recovery journey for sure yeah i thank you so much for highlighting that because i guess a big piece of i think why disordered eating proliferates into um, eating disorder is there is this fear of approaching the subject and actually approaching someone to have that really uncomfortable discussion and so we kind of fear that confrontation but also there's a fear of making it worse if i say something what's your response to that jess because it is definitely something that oh well if one of my athletes have an eating disorder i might have done something wrong so i'm better kind of just not to say anything yeah, and I hear that as, you know, a, definitely a very valid statement for professionals working in this space, absolutely. Um, now, being in recovery for as long as I have, which is almost nine years, a decade, I think that you have to ask the question. A fear around how that might be perceived by the individual you're working with is, is valid, and I understand that but it's better than not asking. And I think that professionals need to be confident knowing that by asking that, that question, then absolutely not going to make the situation worse. And I think that that's a, top, a conversation that needs to be discussed when we come to talk about mental health in, in general. Any question asking if a person you know, is okay uh, or uh, if they need more support around their food intake and, and how their training is going, uh, I think needs to be to be said. I hope that, well, my wishes for professionals working in this space is that they understand they don't need to have all the answers. And I think that that's a huge pressure that people like yourself must feel, you know, that when you do ask that question, you need to be prepared with resources, with, with the answers, with something to be able to help and fix. And that's not necessarily the case certainly in some situations it it's very beneficial for a professional to have you know some some resources or some other uh, information that can help if the conversation goes that way where an athlete says yes actually i i am struggling and i feel like i have you know developed an eating disorder but that pressure isn't something that i think um professionals should be taking on um, but it, it is hard because I know in my experience, when people have asked me along the way, my first response would, no, I'm fine. Uh, but as someone speaking from experience, what happened in that process is it knew, it allowed me to know who I could turn to when I was ready. Yeah. It gave me the, the opportunity to say, well, this person has obviously noticed something. This mm. person is obviously willing to ask that question so I know that there is um, a level of support or help there I just wasn't ready at certain times to say actually yes I do but they were the people I always went back to so I think that if there's any you know um, positivity or confidence that I can share with professionals working in this space is that by asking the question I I really don't believe it will make it worse it will just allow that person an opportunity to know who they can turn to when they're ready and and that's the other challenging part about this is from you know a nutritionist from a dietitian from coaches psychologists you know the well-being staff when they can see that there is an athlete struggling or they can highlight behavioral patterns and changes um, and you know that you want to be able to intervene and help being 
patient enough to take a step back and say, I'm just going to continue watching this, this athlete. I've asked a question and now I have to give them the space and respect to come back to me when they're ready. And that can be very, very hard as well. I understand. Mm, yeah, especially for us emuals that are always looking to fix and support. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and you mentioned those um, behaviour cues and, you know, just noticing. Are you able to walk us through some of the things that you might notice um, when someone is struggling with their food or having, you know, just even that start where you might start noticing some changes. You mentioned a few already in terms of um, going to the toilet straight after meals or restriction and things, but is there anything else you might want to add to that? Yeah, I think avoidance is one to be aware of. So avoiding situations where, you know, there is food. Um, so that, you know, individual might not want to join in dinner times or group, you know, sessions where food is involved celebrations and things like that they might come early or leave early come later anything where it's um, a recurring thing where food seems to be uh, a deterrent for particular athlete um, but also important to watch athletes who might um, really thrive in that environment in the sense that they want to be around food all the time that that is um, you, you know you always see them to the to the point where it's like, well, they've just eaten. Why are they, you know, focusing so much of their time and energy on food? Um, because a lot of the time, in my experience, that was also a way for me to feel that I was in control. If I was the first one there, I could see, you know, when I, I'm really talking about camps and things like that, you know, yeah, when no, that's um, athletes are t together and around and it's sort of like, you know, if I could be there first, I could see what food was available. Was I comfortable with it? You know, how could I, you know, make sure that I got salad, for example, rather than, you know, a, an option that I wasn't comfortable with. So a preoccupation with food and with mealtime um, certainly is something else to be aware of. So it's kind of like the, the two, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum, the avoidance, but also the, I don't like to use um, the word obsession, but definitely preoccupation when there is, you know, so much focus around food and, and that in conversation as well. I mean, it can certainly be hard to pick up, but I think for, for those people who are around athletes all the time, you will notice little things where they start to say, okay, well, that's a bit weird. They continue talking about food or they continue talking about um, ways in which they can um, sort of, uh, manipulate their diet or they're worried about what they're eating that sort of stuff obvious other obvious ones i think also um not participating as much so obviously when i'm talking about that referencing like the swimming pool you know so being distant not you know taking part in you know the conversation or the banter that happens around the pool that sort of stuff just people who seem to be um just not themselves and i know that that's that's such a um, you know, like a varied way to to explain it. And again, I see the challenges from people like yourself who are then trying to pinpoint and say, well, how can I tell if this particular athlete is really struggling? Um, and I guess observation from professionals and really it comes back down to asking that question and, you know, having the the knowledge and the, the power behind you to know that by asking that question, you are simply going to get an answer that's no or you get an answer where they say, actually, yes, I do need help. And then you put into to practice some tools and strategies that are going to help both of you work through that in the best way possible. Oh, fantastic. I love that. And, and I really like that 
you can kind of come back to that person even if they don't answer, even if they say, yeah, I'm okay, uh, knowing that there is a higher likelihood that you'll then be that person that they come back to when they are ready is really nice. And I've never really thought about it like that. Now, I think a big piece of empathizing, and I really believe that people can empathize without necessarily having to live this. And so I would love to you use the word preoccupation, which you know, it must be one of the most fatiguing parts of this with how much time, energy, thought must go into your daily struggle within an eating disorder. Would you mind sharing what that might have felt like if you can go back to those days? Yeah, it was absolutely horrendous. I just remember there was nothing that would be in my mind other than food. It would be from the moment I woke up to, you know, what was I going to eat before training? You know, what was I going to eat after training? Did I pack the right food, you know, to, to go to uni, to go to school? Um, it, or just completely... Um, overwhelmed with calorie intake you know every i've got notebooks all around you know my parents house now with calculations of how much every food was every meal intake how much exercise i'd done that day could it count you know was i in the negative was i in the positive what could i do more at training to be able to um you know balance it all out uh, and getting on the scales which is literally the worst thing in the world for me but hard because so, most so many athletes need to do that so this is where it gets even more complicated um but being 0.2 of a kilo over what i was the day before would just set me into a complete frenzy um and how that looked in the outside world away from from swimming is that you know i relationships friendships everything suffered you know because my mind was so busy uh with thinking about food and training that i could not even have a proper conversation like i was so distant my eyes were just not there because i was so um preoccupied with thinking about everything else um and it took its toll on my study my university i remember turning up to an 8am lecture and everyone was there, which was surprising because it was, you know, most people would sleep in. I would always be there early. Um, and I had no idea that it was an exam. No idea. It was a midterm exam. And I was mortified. I was like, how could I have not known? But it's because every minute of every day was thinking about food and also fantasizing, you know, about what my binge would be like on the weekend. You know, what, what was I depriving myself of this week that I could, you know, binge on the weekend. And it, it was absolutely shocking. And, you know, if I'd be invited to, you know, catch up with a friend or to a birthday event and it was at a cafe or it was at a restaurant, I would ring ahead of time. I would go online and look at the menus, um, figure out exactly what I was going to eat and not stray from that. Like, it's exhausting, really, really exhausting. And then trying to do all the training on top of that. It was just too much. And so, you know, I think for, for people who aren't living this, it's, um, it, it's still something that you can, you can see if you, you know, a friend or a, um, an athlete that you're training with, I think it does become obvious because that person is just so um, suffocated with, with living with an eating disorder or even disordered eating that um, it starts to chip away at every other area of their life. And, and it did for me. And, and you know, and I'm, you know, listeners now will know that it, it cost me my swimming career. You know, I got to the point where what I was trying to achieve, um, I actually destroyed in the process because of my eating disorder. Yeah. 
Now, one thing that really hit home for me um, when I was doing the pilot for the eating disorders in sport, when you did that beautiful video and interview and the whole room just like breathed in, I think when you said it was my eating disorder was my best friend. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard one for, again, um, for people who haven't experienced it, but it was because I had pushed so many people away in my life. Um, I didn't trust anybody. I, it, it was too hurtful and painful to talk about my eating disorder. So in that sense, it protected me at the same time because I could be alone and isolated with my eating disorder, even though it was destroying me, it was, it was literally killing me. Um, letting go of that was so terrifying because it was all I had known for, for over a decade. So to then have to say, you know, I'm not going to continue with these behaviours was, was too scary for me. Um, it was easier to push family away. It was easier to push friends away uh, because at night time and in, you know, moments when there's nobody else around, you only have your thoughts. So if my thoughts were associated with my eating disorder, it felt that that was what was protecting me and I had to protect it. So I had to cover it up. I had to lie. I had to pretend that I wasn't um, binging and purging and restricting anymore because I didn't want people to to know what was really going on. I, I, I needed that. It was something that I could hang on to. And like I said earlier, I felt that I was control, controlling that part of my life. But obviously now I know that it was controlling me and it was destroying me. Um, but yes, uh, it was definitely my best friend in, in so many ways. So letting go of that and, and taking that first step to saying, I can't do this anymore. I have to move into recovery. Oh, it was, it was so, so hard. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about what recovery looks like because I'm sure it's different for everyone. Like eating disorders are different for everyone. Yeah. How, how long did it take for you to get to a point where you had that realization that you were in a place of food freedom? Yes, and, I'll be honest. Um, and are you there, to be honest? Like, yes, so thankfully, and I'm so proud. Yes, I am there now. Like, I don't see food as, as good or bad or love or hate or an enemy. Food just is what it is. And I enjoy food. I enjoy cooking. I enjoy making meals with my kids. And that is freedom for me. But it took a long time. Initially, I remember celebrating the fact that I had gotten to 45 days without um, purging, uh, making myself sick. And, you know, that was a huge achievement. But I was still obsessed in my mind thinking about food. And I had probably binged a few times as well and maybe over-exercised. So initially, you know, recovery for me was, okay, I just can't make myself sick. And then as I, you know, became better at that, then there were other aspects of recovery that I needed to, to implement. So that was not over-exercising to the point where I had to completely stop exercising. That was, you know, in order for me to get to that next part of recovery. Um, and, you know, it was one step forward, 10 steps back for a couple of years, really. Um, and I just had to keep connecting with people who were already in recovery so that I knew that it was possible. And that's why it's important for people to share their story so that those of us who were in that early stages of recovery have that bit of hope to know that it is possible and I can get there. And so that's what enabled me to just continue taking one step at a time, one step at a time to the point where I am today. And, 
Um, I, I enjoy food. I, um, there's no, I don't do any diets. I don't restrict. I eat what I want when I want within reason. I think it's important to say within reason because people used to say that to me and it's like, I don't go out and eat 10 blocks of chocolate, but if I want chocolate, I'm going to have a piece of chocolate. And I think through everything that I've been through, um, I'm now at that happy place where it's not restriction, but it's not overeating. And for me to get to that point is amazing. And I think um, I just feel so grateful now. Um, but it's as a mother of three children, I am determined to not let my behaviour impact how they perceive food and how they view exercise and that world so i'm very very mindful that i'm their role model and so there's no such thing as diet in our house it's you know just foods that make us feel good and give us the energy to do what we need to do and so by me having that mentality and probably becoming a mother has really helped me to get to that stage of recovery where i am now where i feel free yeah, that's amazing. And I think that's a really nice place to put it because I um, I well up every time I talk about like my relationship with food and how responsible I feel for my kids and yeah. how they're growing up. Um, and it's a really interesting place where you do feel like, I think because we know so much and we know how um, debilitating it can be, this diet culture that is absolutely intrinsically linked to so much of what we see and social media, it, it, I think it's a really interesting place to even go now. How do you feel around, like, obviously this was all happening to you before social media, before these images and messages were in our faces daily. Um, what are your concerns now? With um, yeah. yeah, really good um, point to touch on. I, you know, I didn't have a phone until I went to university, so I wasn't bombarded with the messaging and the images that young people are faced with today. Thank goodness, because I already felt that pressure from not having to be exposed to that. So I really do worry for, for younger generations or people of any age, because, you know, we know oh, that disordered eating and eating disorders, yeah, it doesn't, it, it doesn't discriminate. And so I think we're faced with an incredibly challenging platform when it comes to social media. It's not going to go away though and so we have to educate ourselves certainly as parents we have a responsibility to know what our children are seeing we have a responsibility to introduce the social media platforms to them in a way that they're going to feel empowered and i think what i'm learning is that i have to go on that journey with my kids i can't be oblivious i can't be naive and i can't ignore it i need to know what they're seeing and i want to be able to have a conversation an honest conversation with them around it so you know my eldest is 5 and you know she's not exposed to that at the moment but there's so many um you know, opportunities where she will learn things where I can't be and I won't have control. So I think um, what's important is the communication and the conversations I have with her. I will be honest with her about my experiences, but I want to use my experience in a way that's going to show her that respect and self-respect is what we need to value most and i think that's something I, I didn't have as as a young person and so i want to instill that in her and i hope that by doing that it will make her feel um confident when she's faced inevitably with with challenging messages on, on social media and whatever 
is going to be available to her when she does hit her teenage years. Um, it, it's daunting, but I think, you know, we have to be, be wise um, as adults and as parents and how best we can support our children. And that simply comes by making sure that we're educated about what they're seeing as well. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's a massive piece. There's no real answer. It's really no. being aware and um, hopefully being really proactive in setting up that human, which does have confidence and resilience to move through whatever space is next, I think. And you mentioned actually, which I'd love to touch on the cliche of what an eating disorder looks like, right? Yeah. Do you ever have that, you know, that comment of, you don't look sick enough or, you know, even the age thing I find intriguing because the prevalence of disordered eating in 40 to 60 year olds is higher than breast cancer. So yeah. I think it's a really interesting place where that cliche can be a barrier to recognition that disordered eating and eating disorder exists, but also a barrier to exploring it and approaching a person and possibly about it. Absolutely, 100%. Um, I did have those comments made to me often. Oh, you look fine. You know, you seem to be okay. Um, you know, I would go and have blood tests and things would be okay. I, I remember going to see a doctor once, um, maybe six years into my, my eating disorder, and I had bloods taken and she was like, no, you're fine. Like potassium, it's all fine. Like no worries. Iron's fine. You know, you don't, you're not anemic. Like it's okay. And for me, taking that step to go to a doctor to say, look, I'm struggling with this and for them to say, no, it's okay. I just felt so deflated and so, oh no, are you back? Did it just, sorry, um, I'll pick up, sorry. So to, to go to a doctor and to, to voice how I was feeling and to voice the fact that I knew that I was struggling and to have that person say to me, no, it's okay, everything seems fine. I just took that as, okay, well, what I'm doing is fine. Like there's no issue here. But then as I really did get to a, a state of desperately needing help, um, I heard that so many times, you know, you don't look sick, you don't look skeletal, like, you know, you mustn't be too bad. And here I was making myself sick at least once every single day for a decade, um, crying every day. Like the, the things that I've, you know, done and experience with food and, and, you know, hurt my body and all that sort of stuff and desperately trying to ask for help and then have people say, well, it can't be too bad. That's when I thought, okay, well, fine, I'll just stop eating. And that's what I did. I was like, if I don't lose more weight, people aren't going to take me seriously. So that's when the whole anorexia side came in. And even then, in my mind, as someone living with the experience, I hated myself for the fact that I had bulimia and not anorexia because that was disgusting as far as I was concerned. Why couldn't I be strict enough to um, just not eat? And, and so, you know, it was just awful. And I think this, this is what we have to change within society. There is no one eating disorder that looks the same as another. Obviously there's certain aspects that have to be, you know, assessed clinically to determine whether it's a clinical eating disorder or disordered eating, I understand that. But even at that point, no two journeys are exactly the same. And we need to be able to come into treatment and to recovery with that mindset of knowing that we have to help the individual. It has to be a collaborative approach. We have to um, talk to the person who's suffering to be able to understand what they're going through. What was it? What is it that's upsetting you? How can we help you? Um, and, 
yeah, I just, it, that just made it so much harder. And I think as an athlete as well, um, wanting to, to talk to, you know, different members of the, the sporting staff, but their approaches, you know, were that you need a certain amount of power, you need a certain amount of weight, you need, you know, certain aspects of, of, of your body and power to rate weight ratio and all that sort of conversation that were happening um, didn't allow for, for me to say, yes, but I'm still, I'm still starting myself. I'm still making my sick, like myself sick every day. Like I know that I'm meeting targets in certain areas, but if I don't do something now, I'm going to fail to meet those targets and those goals soon. And that's eventually what happened to the point where there was no return. I couldn't fix that anymore. I couldn't come back to my swimming career. Um, and so we, yeah, I'm so glad that this conversation is happening now at a high level within sport because it's so important. Um, and since doing, um, you know, the videos and the, the position statement going out. I've had so many athletes from Australian teams contact me and say, thank you. You know, they're in their own journey and different parts and, and different stages. And they're just glad that this conversation is now happening. And I think that, you know, we have to just continue moving forward with the idea that we have to help athletes. We have to make sure that they, that they feel supported. Otherwise, you know, I just... I feel that it's an issue that's gone on for too long where we just haven't had the tools and the strategies to support athletes. And, you know, sad to say that I think a lot of them, myself included, have had to end a career when there was so much potential, unfortunately. Yeah, really good points. Now, you mentioned the collaborative approach and also, you know, how hard the discussion was to have when the discussion was so focused on performance or numbers. What can we do better, Jess? moving forward as sport, as collaborative teams to ensure that we're catching things early, um, but also supporting those who are struggling. Yeah, I think th this, what we're doing now, you know, these conversations are important and it might sound very simple and you, and, and I know for, uh, you know, people like yourselves and, and other professionals in the sporting arena are wanting um, an answer. You want to be able to know what can I do to, to help, individuals and I think before we get to to those points we have to have the conversations to the point where people feel comfortable having the conversations it's not an awkward conversation to have I think those barriers need to be broken down first in order for it to become part of the well-being structures and systems that are put into place across all sports codes so these conversations these messages you know the position statement things that are happening now are crucial so it is step by step things will change for the better i have no doubt whatsoever but we have to start here we have to start somewhere and that is conversation so so never underestimate the power of like you said asking that question and just be willing to talk openly it doesn't have to be behind closed doors it doesn't have to be a secret conversation i think if sporting staff and um and coaches start having those conversations in a more um public forum more and more athletes are going to feel more comfortable coming to say actually you know what i'm glad we're having these conversations i have something i need to share and that's that's where the change is going to take place amazing yeah i, I think it's only recently that i've really um, realized, I guess, the power of story and the power of personal experience because we held the Compete Con in April just as um, COVID hit because we're like, wow, everyone's lost their jobs, everyone's lost their identity, let's just do something. 
And one of the sessions was on low energy availability. And it's one thing to hear from a specialist who has Bron Lundy talk about what it means, what it looks like, why we need to eat enough, rah, rah, rah. But then it followed on to two heavyweight rowers, one female, one male. And the impact that that personal story had on athletes coming from everywhere to go, oh my gosh, that's me, was just immense. And I don't think we ever would have um, really made that impact with just Bron speaking, even though Bron is an incredible practitioner, without an athlete's story to really support what that actually looks like, what that actually feels like as an athlete, and that there's nothing wrong with you. It's really about what next and what can I do better? And yeah, that was really, really powerful. And yeah, so thank you so much for sharing your story today. Um, I honestly have just covered everything that I wanted to cover, Jess, but if there is any big messages that you would like to leave us with today, that would be incredible. But you know, the time that you've shared um, is just so generous. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Alicia. I think these conversations, you know, I keep saying it because it's important. The conversations weren't being had when I was struggling and, you know, I get goosebumps now because I just, I know, I, I guarantee you there are so many athletes out there across all sports who are benefiting from this right now. And that's what's important just to know that, okay, this, this conversation is being had. I now have an opportunity to know that if I voice my concerns and my story and my journey, I'm going to be heard and I'm going to be validated. And that's what's important. So thank you so much for having this conversation. Um, It means the world to me. And I know that it means the world to so many athletes on their journey at the moment. Thanks, Jess. What an absolute pleasure. You have an amazing rest of your day. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much, Alicia. Thank you so much for joining that podcast with Jess. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, I don't think we could ever thank her for the ability to share so much about her story and her generosity and the insights that she shared alongside with it. And if you are someone who this has really resonated with, whether it's someone you know have and you have noticed some things that you would like to approach, if it's yourself and you're really finding yourself in a challenging place when it comes to food and control and your relationship with food, then... I guess the biggest piece in all of this is starting the conversation and allowing that conversation to lead to the support that you need or a family member needs or a friend needs. And there's no shame alongside this. This condition is something that impacts many. There's no rhyme or reason to it. um, There's no one case, as we mentioned throughout the podcast, there's no one definition of um, what disordered eating or eating disorder looks like. And so never feel like your problem's not big enough. Never feel like it's based around how much you way or what you look like or how hard someone else might have it anything um, that you feel is a problem is a problem and it deserves recognition and it deserves a voice Uh, and we hope that the sharing this story has allowed you one piece of that puzzle in finding your recovery or allowing someone you love to find their recovery and their path and their journey forward as well. So we have linked lots of resources to this podcast for very good reason. We want you to be able to feel safe in reaching out. If none of these links um, you know, resonate to you or you'd like to have a personal conversation, please know that our private messages are always open. We've um, also included the ability to reach out via our free assessment as well. And the reason for that is, is just to start the conversation. I think sometimes it can feel overwhelming to know where to start uh, and sometimes just that first initial conversation without any pressure just allows you to 
find the path forward and you know for many it won't be with us and then for many others it might be and um, we can really help alongside a collaborative team to get you to a point of feeling very um, hopeful uh, and seeing hope as we mentioned in this podcast that's such a powerful tool when it comes to recovery and seeing a light at the end of this tunnel that's very debilitating and very overwhelming for many of you. So um, I hope you enjoyed the story. And for those health practitioners listening, I hope it allows some more understanding and empathy when it comes to working with clients or um, referring on clients with an eating disorder or struggles in the way of food. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, Really looking forward to hearing from you. uh, And we will chat on the next podcast very soon. Cheers.